Thank you very much, Brother Eric. And, uh, welcome to everybody that's here, as well as those who are watching online. So glad to be back. I'm back in the, uh, in the pulpit this morning. We have a full agenda here for today's sermon. There's uh, quite a bit of things going on in our world, as well as within here, within Acts, we have a, uh, a new building that we are getting accustomed to. This is our, our third service, I believe, here. So we are inviting those that perhaps have not come yet to this new location to please uh, come check it out. Uh, as far as what we're going to cover today, Brother Eric mentioned that today is a, a very special commemoration that we observe, uh, Reformation Sunday, which is the 503rd anniversary of the what kicked off the Protestant Reformation. I'll mention something about that. And then uh, I also have some comments on how Christians should think about and concern ourselves with what goes on in our everyday world and with our current events. Uh, we would be naive not to acknowledge how much a presidential election influences the culture and even the church and how the church should think biblically when thinking about those types of elections. And then we're also going to return to the book of Malachi. We left off when Pastor Kevin preached in chapter 2 and I'm going to preach one verse of chapter 2 and that will bring us to the closure of chapter 2 of Malachi. Okay, so with that, uh, let us open up the Bible to the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17. And if you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17. The inerrant word of God says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have you wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, because your word is true. Thank you that you bring to us, to our attention, Lord, the fact that you are the God of justice. And that we would... Be wise to approach you carefully, Lord, when we ask for your justice. Will we not forget your blessings? May we come to you with a, a heart of humility, a heart of repentance, to be guided by your word, Lord, and to know that you are good, that you are just, and that you are merciful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So, a quick word on Reformation Sunday. This is what a lot of Protestants observe when a man by the name of Martin Luther, you may hear that name, Martin Luther, he nailed a list of 95 statements to the Castle Church in Wittenberg. 95 theses. It's often, it's often referred to as the document that he nailed to the door. Now, his intent, Martin Luther's intent, was actually not to be necessarily antagonistic to, to the Roman Catholic Church, which he belonged to. 
But when he was not convinced that what he was seeing was following scripture, this was a common way of sort of posting in the bulletin board and saying, hey, listen, I have some questions, I have some concerns, and I'll leave this right here. Anybody wants to talk, engage about it, dialogue, debate, let's do it. Now, I guess the, the closest to that I can think of is if somebody posts on social media a what could be construed as a controversial statement or position, but the debates back then were not anything like we would engage in a so-called debate, especially in social media or even in person. These were actually scholarly debates. So Luther nailed these the list of his 95 statements. And at the center of the controversy was the selling of indulgences that the Roman Catholic Church was doing. Now, what is an indulgence? An indulgence, according to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, was the pardoning of temporal punishment due to sinners who have died so that their Sin, something that needed to be cleansed of, could be expiated, could be done away with before they actually can enter heaven. This intermediary, intermediary state before actually reaching God's presence. Now, that is unbiblical in itself, but even more was the fact that now the Roman Catholic Church was now profiting off of the, the people that had loved ones that had died, giving them some sort of false assurance that if they paid a particular fee, then the souls of their loved ones would be cleansed and then would be pushed through to heaven. So what began as a genuine search for, for answers from Luther turned into what is known the Protestant Reformation. Quickly after that came the printing press. Many people took interest in the words and the position of Martin Luther, and that just caught fire, which was the kickoff of what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. Now, this is a very condensed summary. Last year for Reformation Sunday, I actually preached a whole sermon on it. I believe that's in the archives in our YouTube page, so you can refer to that for further details. Now, I would say the main takeaway would be that Protestants, when this movement was kicked off, basically refused to align with the wayward teachings of an apostate church. And from there, Christians stood firm that the Bible, not the church, the Bible is the authority, the divine authority by under which Christians, true Christians, should abide by not the authority of the church, especially when it has erroneous teachings, but rather the authority of the Word of God. And from there is where we ultimately get the five solas of the Reformation. We might have heard this phrase, right? the five solas, what is that? Basically, is the conviction that we are saved by grace alone, and that comes by faith alone in Christ, which is Christ alone, we know this through Scripture alone, the authority of Scripture only. And all that is for the glory of God alone. 
This is all God-centric, Christ-centric. Obviously, we are part of that. We are part of God's plan, but we are not the center of the gospel or the center of the scriptures. It is God and for His glory. And ultimately, the historical events of the Reformation are a gracious work of God to make His people return to His word, to make His people that are going astray realize that there's something not right and be able to return to what the scripture says, to what the word of God says, because the word of God will never pass away. So this was a move, this was a divine intervention from God. It was not necessarily Luther in and of himself who did this, although he was greatly used as an instrument to bring forth the Reformation. And even before him, some men that set the, the legwork for that to be done. And after Luther, many more godly men who continued with that effort. So we may ask, why is that important now? Well, that's because the view that we have about Scripture, the view that we have about what the Word of God means for us, will shape our worldview. We live our lives and make our daily choices based on a particular worldview that we have. And that's why it's important. Which leads to the next topic that I would like to comment on. As a church that believes that the Bible is relevant to our times and to our everyday life and to the life of the world in general and our nation in particular, it would be naive to say that as Christians, we should really stay away or, or keep quiet about such important events in life and in this nation, such as a presidential election. Right? Maybe if I don't mention it, it's what's in everyone's mind anyways, right? So we do remain relevant, not because it is the job of a pastor to come and preach political sermons. That's not my job. My job is to preach the gospel. But inevitably, the things that we see before us do affect our everyday lives and how we live as Christians in this nation. So when it comes to public life, therefore, there's no such thing as keeping your faith to yourself. Or your faith is good for you, but please make sure that you don't bring that into the public forum. Those who hold to a biblical worldview, those who profess those who say that hold to, to a biblical worldview and yet profess that they don't mix their politics with their spiritual beliefs are living in a contradiction. They either don't take their spiritual convictions seriously or those so-called convictions are so watered down that it has no impact on their day-to-day -day choices or the things that they decide to get behind. I will repeat this. I've said it before. We make our most important choices in life based on what we believe and not based on what we don't believe. And therefore, it is impossible to separate our convictions, whether they are biblical convictions or whether they are secular convictions, in the life of basically an everyday person. So therefore, our opinions, how we form our opinions, including political convictions, are based on the worldview 
that we abide by. Now, I will say, the most political statement, the most divisive statement that can ever be said. I'll say that now. Are you ready? That is, Jesus is Lord. Now, many of you may say, well, that's not really a political statement. That's, well, that's your religion. That's your belief. But make no mistake. Throughout history, kings, emperors, dictators, tyrants, presidents, governors, mayors, have understood very clearly how Christians can be a problem to their political agenda. Okay? As Christians, we do have a command to honor the civil authorities, but there's a command even greater than that, more binding. And that more binding commandment is to proclaim and to live according to the Lordship of Jesus. There is therefore a distinct line of what we must honor and obey God rather than men. That's Acts 5.29 and other similar passages in the text. As I stated, pastors are called to preach the gospel, herald the gospel, the good news. Inevitably, preaching from the Word of God will rub some people and some leaders the wrong way. Many will say that churches should be stripped of their 501c3 status because something is being preached that they disagree with. Case in point, there are actually countries already today in which it's illegal to preach what the Bible has to say about marriage and about sexuality. Canada is one of them. Britain. And the way that these things come about is that laws get passed saying that you cannot spew hate speech in the public forum or if you're an entity that has protections under a certain tax code, and you cannot say that. So therefore, I think that those that say that churches should be stripped from their 501c3 status, I actually don't disagree with them. I don't think that it is the role of a church to take stuff from the government, nor to abide to what the government tells you that you can or cannot preach, or to how you can and cannot worship. I have a strong conviction that within our lifetime, there will be a time when I would be in legal trouble, if not arrested, if I preach what the Bible says. Now, some of you may say I'm being exaggerated. I already gave you two examples of where that is legal. And we already see that in the U.S. in some public forums, such as universities such as social media, in which there's not only censorship, but there's repercussions if somebody speaks and then somebody complains saying that what you're saying is hate speech. This have real ramifications. And when it comes to the church, the government, 
has not been given any such authority, the civil magistrates have no authority to tell the church what they can preach or how they should preach or how they should worship. That authority belongs to God and to God alone. That is not to say that we don't honor Caesar, that we don't are good witnesses when it comes to living in this society. Now, specifically, in regards to the presidential election on Tuesday, I guess it'll be up to you if you think that I'm staying in a safe zone or that all I'm saying is platitudes which really have no meaning because, I mean, otherwise I would be a politician too, right? But I think I, I hope to be a little bit more precise than just that. As far as an assessment of the two, two candidates that are running for or one of the re-election and the other one for a president, right, the two candidates, based on what we know, if we are faithful to what Christian scripture says, I don't think either of them are Christians. This is taking what they've said, right? It's taking their character, what we can observe. I don't think there would be any evidence to convict either of them of being a Christian. Which again, we ask the question, if I was accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me of a Christian? The Bible calls us to have good discernment. So based on what we know, I don't think either of them are Christians. Another thing we could probably most of us agree on is that of the two men contending for that position, it's really tough for either of them to be respectful, to be civil. And thirdly, I don't think that I would tell my kids that either of them are a good example to follow as a good citizen. I don't think I would do that. Nevertheless, we must not confuse that and draw a line to say that therefore there is moral equivalency over the candidate stands on issues that are important to the church. I'll tell you what I mean. As Christians, we should acknowledge God, first and foremost. Acknowledge God. And that's actually not a mandate only to Christians, but to every creature, to every human being. And we don't believe that it's wise to remove God from an even political agenda, from a political platform. The reason why a country can thrive is because the founding principles and founding fathers acknowledge that man is made in the image of God and their rights come from God, not from bureaucrats. Okay? We acknowledge God. Anything else other than that is just that godless. Godless and it has no basis for when they then turn around and say, this is good and this is not good. There's no basis for it. You fall into relativism. And then, as Judges 17.6 says, at the time when Israel was not seeking God and had no king appointed to them by God, it says that everyone did what was right in their own 
You think that's a good way to to rule the people? First Peter two fourteen says, "Governors are sent by him, any God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good." Now, how can that be accomplished when those governors have switched the meaning of what is good to what is evil and vice versa? Because there's no standard of what real good and real evil is. The heart of men is wicked, and therefore leaders will lead people astray. And most, most likely will rule with an iron fist when God is not acknowledged. We acknowledge God. Secondly, we stand firm, unequivocally, and apologetically for the life of the unborn. God says in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. The Bible is clear that God is the creator and giver of life. And that the life of a child is unequivocally honored and validated by God himself. From the time a child is in the womb. God would be vindicated, and righteously so, to judge this nation. Based on all the blood that has been shed of infants in the womb, of babies in the womb. If judgment came upon this country because of that, God would be vindicated today. Thirdly, we stand strongly against the materialistic and secular humanist philosophy of intersectionality and racial critical race theory. That is anti-biblical, that is diametrically opposed to what the Bible teaches about human nature, and to what the solution is to a sinful problem. If we are divided into categories and we are bullied into chanting mantras or get behind a movement that they themselves say the purpose is to annihilate, to get rid of the family unit, we are going astray ourselves. Fourthly, we as Christians believe in the rule of law and in civility. Romans 12, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. We are to honor civil society and be an example to non-Christians. We are to be civil. We are to reason with each other and with others, Isaiah 118, God says, come let us reason together. When it comes to answering questions about our faith and why we hold the convictions that we do, the Bible also tells us to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us, and yet to do it with humility and with respect. We are then told in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, that we are to not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, correcting our opponents, our opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Rule of law, civility, humility, 
dialogue, gentleness. So this means that, practically speaking, if the candidate we vote for does not win the election, it gives us no right to malign the other side, to destroy property, nor to verbally or physically assault those that disagree with us. That is absolutely not acceptable, and we condemn that. Now, although this country was founded on Christian principles, make no mistake, the United States is not a Christian nation. Okay? We would be naive to think so. We are a disobedient and rebellious nation. We suppress the truth of God and we turn to the idolatry of the created rather than the real worship of the true God. And if we look to scripture, we see over and over how God has actually judged nations either by using other nations that are more evil than them or by letting them have evil rulers over them. Right? And you could say, aha, that's why we're in the position we are right now. Or you could say, oh yeah, that's what we're going to be in that position, right? Depending on what you're thinking. But nevertheless, God has used that consistently over and over to judge nations. Do we think we're so special that the U.S. is not going to be judged? Think again. So then, what can we conclude? Well, I would say rather than having a cult-like attachment to any political candidate or platform, let us remember that we must humbly turn to God, both individually and as a nation. We need repentance. We need to say, Lord, have mercy on us. We have sinned. Have mercy on us. And whatever happens on Tuesday, remember one thing. Jesus is Lord. He will remain in the throne. And we can stand in that truth and trust that He ultimately is our King and our Ruler. Let's put our hope in God and not in men. And remember what the scripture says in Proverbs 21 verse 1 where it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Even in the cases where God has allowed evil men to rule over people, God is still sovereign over that ruling. And then let us pray. Scripture tells us to pray for our governors, for our magistrates. First of all, pray for their salvation. Pray that God will have mercy on them. That in doing so, that God will have mercy on us. That's a biblical thing to do. Pray for them. Especially if you don't like them. Pray for them. Because we too will be held to account on what our attitude is is or was in this time. Okay, that's what I have to say about that. Let us then turn to the passage that we're focusing on today, Malachi 2, chapter 2, verse 17. A quick recap of the book of Malachi is 
that this is a conversation between God and his people. And it's actually related to the comments that I've just given now. In this conversation that God has with his people, is divided into several dis disputations, which is God brings forth an accusation, an observation, a question for his people, and God's people turn back and say, we haven't done that. Basically calling God a liar. And this is not true that many times when we are confronted with a wrong that we have done, many times our first answer is, I didn't do that. Yes, you did. This reminds me of dealing with my children. Believe it or not, starting the night before service, I start having talks with them. Hey, tomorrow is service. You need to listen. You need to not yell. You need to be attentive, right? Believe it or not, I have those thoughts with me. Now, we are far from reaching our goal, but by God's grace, I think we've gotten a little bit better. But the point being that many times after service, maybe during lunch or when we're back home, I ask them, hey, why did you misbehave at service today? Why did you yell? Or why weren't you not paying attention? It's not uncommon for them to say, how did I not act good? Right? To deny it. And such is the same type of attitude with, people, with the people of God when God speaks to them and informs them that they have been disobedient. But how have we been disobedient? Right? So here the accusation against God's people is that they have wearied the Lord with their words. The people of God know that they have been promised certain things. Even back to the beginning of the Old Testament when they were promised that they were going to be inheriting a land flowing with milk and honey. And from there on, many promises that even promised material blessings, tangible, visible blessings in the life of the people of Israel. So in that sense, they do have a right to those promises. But now when they find themselves coming back from, from being captive, in Babylon, they're basically saying, where are my blessings? Look at these people, my neighbors, they're living it up. Why are we in such bad shape? Pastor Kevin, he preached a few weeks ago about the covenant of God with his people and how that covenant had been dishonored, how that covenant had been broken. And rest assured, it wasn't God who broke that covenant. It was the people. The people were being unfaithful to the religious practices as God had ordained. They were being unfaithful to the covenant that God said with them, with Levi. They were being unfaithful with each other, specifically unfaithful in the covenant of marriage. And it doesn't occur to the people of Israel that, you know what, maybe... Maybe we have been very disobedient. And in a sense, we're living the consequences of our bad choices. Right? Immediately, their attitude was, we're actually okay. We are being wronged. Right? 
In that phrase, it says that they have wearied the Lord with their words. What does that mean? The word you says that it's causing someone to be mentally, physically, spiritually fatigued. Like, this is too much. Like, stop it already. I can't handle it no more. So let us ask ourselves, can God be worn down to that point where he gets tired and he's just had it? Can that happen? Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us that God is He is God from everlasting to everlasting, right? He's sovereign, He's creator. So that phrase is what we call in Scripture an anthropomorphism. It's a little bit of a fancy word, but what does that mean? That means that God is relating to us in human terms. This is where God humbles himself and comes down to the level of the intellect of humans so that we can understand what he's communicating to us. Anthropomorphism. God humbling himself so that we can understand him. Now, in one hand, this not stop complaining about how bad they have it about bickering of why others have it so good when the others that are doing good could pretty much care less about the things of God. That's one thing. But the people of Israel are not only doing that, they are also seeking self-vindication. In other words, they want God to say, you know what, yeah, you're right. Like, I've been wrong. You guys are right. Yeah, I didn't miss that. They're seeking self-indication. And this concept of self-indication is nothing new under the sun. In our day, whoever seeks to be right with God apart from Christ is doing the same thing. And they too can therefore be accused of worrying God down with complaints, bickering, ungratefulness. But in regards to the complaining about their situation, if you're honest, many of us don't have to think too hard to recall a time where we have perhaps found ourselves asking, why, Lord, why? Why am I in this situation? Why is this happening to me? Look at my neighbor. They could care less about me. They're doing well. They're living it up. They have a better job than me. Their kids are doing well. Why do I have it so long? There could definitely be some truth to that, right? Many of us can make a relate. Well, maybe we could narrow it down and, and look at a couple of options. The first most obvious one that we mentioned is, could the position that we're in now be a consequence of our disobedience and consistently bad choices? In other words, are we reaping what we have sowed? And when that happens, we only emphasize the times that have brought us to the trial. We don't think about those times that God was showing His mercy and His patience and His loving kindness, but we didn't repent. We just kept going our own way. But the moment that we start reaping those consequences, the moment we didn't repent, where those signs were all along, now we're complaining. Why is everything so rough? 
Or another way that we can see this is that we have failed to see God's blessings in the midst of trials. One of the most vivid examples is during the quarantine period, especially when the pandemic started, many of us were home without going to work. And that time could have been redeemed to spend more time with our wife and our kids, to be more intentional with them. Did we redeem that time? Did we seek the blessings that could have came with that trial? We failed to see God's blessings in the midst of trials. Or maybe we failed to find an attitude of thanksgiving in the midst of trials. We have believed the lie many times that the Christian life should be one of health, wealth, and prosperity. And that if we don't have that, it must be because we're doing something wrong. What am I doing wrong? James chapter 2 tells us, actually chapter 1 tells us, Count it out joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Finding blessing in the midst of trials. Being thankful for the blessings. That should make us pray. That should make us draw closer to God. So with that said, I mean, let us be sensitive and aware that there might be brothers and sisters around us that are going through a very rough trial in life. Let us be there to walk with them, to counsel them, to pray with and for them, to serve them. So that they can fulfill the scriptural command to bear each other's burdens. And to mourn with those who mourn. Our attitude should not be indifferent or telling them to, you know, stop complaining, get up, like, what's wrong with you? No, we need to be sensitive to them. Showing them grace, speaking the truth of God to them so that they can find comfort in God's grace. And so they can find a time to be thankful for God's provision. So then, what is the response to the accusation from the people of God? Look at that here. They say, how happy were you? I've done that. Well, the prophet then comes with the first piece of evidence. He says, well, you're saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And God delights in them. That's basically their attitude, and that's how they're living the life to, uh, their daily life. Reminds us of Isaiah 5.20. What it said? It said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And then Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So just two references from God's word itself that says what? That those who call good evil and evil good are going to face a tough judgment. And that God does not love evildoers. 
they're not good in the sight of the Lord. It says that he hates all evil doers. Scripture is therefore very clear on whether God approves of evil doers. And what is evil, by the way? It's like, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm good because I'm not an evil doer. Well, let, us ask, let us ask ourselves, are we putting God first in our life? Are we giving God the worship that He deserves? Or has something or someone taken that place? Are we lying, stealing, cheating, fornicating, committing adultery? And not only in deed, but in mind as well, in thought, as Jesus pointed out. So all of a sudden we realize that evil is basically anything that goes against God's nature. And we realize, well, like I was thinking about somebody else, but now like I'm in trouble. Exactly right. So we must be aware of what God says in His Word. If He says it's evil, then it stands. Right? And what is our culture doing right now? Basically, they're glorifying all the sins of Romans 1 and plus, right? They're calling that good and calling evil anybody who stands up to that and says, wait a minute, that's not right. But let's not go too far into the culture. That's actually infiltrating the churches now, right now. And why does that happen? Because churches have gone away from believing and preaching and teaching what Scripture says. Going back to my first topic, the Reformation. We ought to be reforming ourselves daily, weekly, at our every meeting. And not have the attitude of saying, Well, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all those other churches that are going to Sound familiar? Because we are not exempt from being in that danger ourselves. We ought to always be reforming back to what the Word of God tells us. And not to accommodate to what is being accepted by our culture. The second piece of evidence of the accusation is that they were saying and asking, where is the God of justice? Right, that's the question for the sermon today. Where is the God of justice? All this evil is happening. We are being eaten up. What's happening? Where is the God of justice? So the observation is here that people then and even now, we expect justice. If there's something bad being done, we expect justice. But what we fail to see is that we ourselves act in injustice. And that was true for them. In verse 10, going back to verse 10, it says that they dealt treacherously with men against his brother. They were dealing treacherously with each other. Verse 8 says that the religious leaders had disobeyed God and were leading people astray. While the people were gladly being led astray, because that's what their evil hearts wanted to do anyways. And then back a couple of verses before that, starting in verse 6, it says that people were dishonoring God by bringing him their remains, their scraps, as, form of, as a form of an offering. Basically, spit it in God's face. And here they are saying, we want justice. Where is justice? So then the application here is, have we also not at one time or another 
ponder, God, where is your justice? When we ourselves are guilty of being unjust in our own dealings. And note that this question doesn't necessarily have to be spoken out. Or you don't necessarily have to go and complain to somebody about it. But if our heart and our attitude is one of indignation against God, that is enough to be crying out to God, asking them, where is your justice, God? Why are you doing this? God looks at the heart. So then the question, where is the God of justice? It's a, huge, it's a very huge question for us. And one that brings us, if we leave that question by itself, brings us very bad news. God of justice, where are you? Come up. Show me where you are. Because God is the most righteous judge that can ever exist. God cannot and will not tolerate injustice. Because injustice is sin. God does not tolerate sin. God will not be mocked. God will have the last word. And the last word will be one of judgment. God's justice will find all of us with a guilty verdict if asked alone. Philippians 2 verses 9 and 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as is appointed for man once to die, after that comes judgment. You want God as a judge? Judgment is coming. And every knee is going to bow. Okay? Every knee is going to bow. So, will the God of justice show up? You can take that to the bank. He will. And yet, we're frustrated because we wish that God's justice would appear on our terms right now when we need it. Where are you, God? Are you a just God? And the truth is, if His justice would come, the vast majority of humanity would be doomed and condemned. Those who are not found in Christ would be condemned. But God is merciful, slow to anger, wishing that none would perish, but all should come to repentance. So is it a bad idea to come to God and ask Him to give us justice? First of all, we are failing to see that God has been more than generous and gracious by the fact that we are still here, breathing in our life. And all of humanity are the beneficiaries of God's common grace. Secondly, we are failing to see that we, if we come with an attitude of asking for justice, we are likened to a criminal accused and guilty of murder that is asking God to please give him the verdict right now. I want justice. What do you think is going to happen? 
That justice will come and crush you with the death penalty. So then where did this leave us? Is there no hope? Well, the more important question then becomes, where is the God of mercy? Where is the God of mercy? So that then, instead of approaching God, asking Him for justice, we may approach God asking for His mercy and for His grace. Because God's justice would give us what we deserve. It's not good news. It's condemnation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's grace, in contrast, will give us what we don't deserve. Mercy, peace, love. And God's mercy then withholds what we actually deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Psalm 86, 5. You, Lord, are forgiven and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because he is merciful. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful. And that's the good news for us. So then what we, what we can conclude then is what? We're in for a surprise if we foolishly approach God and ask Him for justice. Because that justice is only satisfied by the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect God-man who lived a perfect life and yet died in our place to pay for our sins so that when we have faith in Christ, His righteousness can be accounted to us. That's the only way that God's justice Ultimately, all the sins, all the atrocities, all the sin of this humanity can be righteously dealt by the righteousness of Jesus. So then let us approach God because we need His mercy and not because He owes us justice. And then when we do receive God's grace and mercy, when there's that transformation in us there's a great responsibility left with us which will be a way to know if we truly have been forgiven if we truly have received grace the words of Jesus in Luke 6 36 says be merciful just as your father is merciful are you merciful to others or do you all want to apply justice to those that have wronged you right away. They wronged me, I want justice. That's really difficult. Right? In my case, not necessarily if somebody has wronged me, but if they have wronged a loved one of mine. Oh, that's so hard. Secondly, Jesus speaking to about the woman whose many sins were forgiven in Luke 7, 47. He said, therefore I tell you, her sins 
which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Meaning, him who has been forgiven much, loves much. Question again, do you love much? Do you love others and make an effort towards them with the sacrificial love of reconciliation towards them? Do you love much? If you do, that means you probably have been forgiven much. But if you restrain that forgiveness, if you restrain that sacrificial love, if you restrain reconciliation, perhaps we've been forgiven little. Which means we haven't been forgiven at all. Because we can't show that to others. Now let us remember that there could be those cases and there are those cases where somebody can be very hurt due to spiritual abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse. And you may be asking God, God, where is your justice? I'm still sitting on that question. Where is your justice? Well, God is not afraid of that question. And be assured, God hears you. And He will repay. He will repay transgressors. Because He is a God of justice. And He will repay them for their wrongdoing. But it will not happen in your time. Because God's time is perfect. And know that you can find refuge in Christ. He can and will give you the rest that you need when you trust in Him. We just read all those verses about God's grace, mercy, love that He gives to those that trust in Him. And even when others or the circumstances of life that are being unjust toward us, let us turn to God and say, Lord, even if those others are unjust to me, even if I'm the victim of circumstance, you can be merciful to me, Lord. He can be your God of grace by turning to Him and say like Bartimaeus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I'll leave you with this, which is the words of David that he alluded to when he realized that if his fate was left to the wickedness of men, he had no chance. But he said, if I cast myself on the mercy of God, I have hope. 2 Samuel 24, 14 says, Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. May this very day we fall into your hand of mercy. Knowing that we need your mercy, that we need your grace, we need your forgiveness. We need to reform back to your word. We need to be renewed in our mind and our hearts. And that renewal comes through the knowing, through the preaching, through the teaching of your word. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our country. Have mercy on our leaders. 
that the scripture from Proverbs 21 will come true and that you would turn the hearts of the leaders, of the rulers, of the kings in the way that you want it, Lord. And may it be from mercy. And turn our own hearts, Lord, in the same way to acknowledge you, to praise you, to worship you. Because you are worthy of it, Lord. Whatever happens, you are worthy of our praise. May your Holy Spirit convict us of that now. And may we remember that Jesus is Lord. And we ask this in His name. Amen.